0: investors, Bradley here from Watson Estates, and you're listening to the largest and fastest growing podcast for Toronto Real Estate on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. The market's going crazy, right? We've got rising interest rates, rising inflation, a dropping housing market, and affordability down the toilet. Well, we're kind of pulling out straws, we're trying to find some kind of insight on what comes next as investors here in Ontario. So today I'd invite my friend Tony Irwin, the president and CEO of FERPO, the Federation of Rental Housing Providers of Ontario, (FR). PO they're an advocacy group with over 2200 members and they'd like to you know speak with the government about how are we going to increase supply how are we going to stop the backlog at the landlord tenant board and what comes next as it relates to rent control and the rent caps as we you know we've been seeing have been frozen through the pandemic there's a lot of changes that are constantly happening tony sheds some light on with our new ontario government coming in what this could look like we have a wonderful chat And I know you're going to love it. I know I learned a bunch of stuff and I hope you do too. When you love this episode, please share it on Instagram. You can tag us at Watson Estates, hit us up with the DM and enjoy the show. Tony, thanks for joining us on the show. How are you doing today? I'm just great Bradley how are you doing? I am doing fantastic and I'm thrilled to have this conversation we were we're getting warmed up before we started recording and I know there's a ton of good stuff laying out in front of us here so tell us a little bit about your maybe we'll start with you tell us a little bit about your backstory and how you came to be the president and CEO of the FRPO.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a great podcast, and I'm, I'm looking forward to a, a really interesting conversation today. So a little bit about me. I've been in my role at FERPO now for about four years. Uh, my background uh, in my career has been sort of, uh, one, and uh, spent a lot of time in, in, in public relations and advocacy in different industries, uh, whether it's in the insurance sector, uh, the high-cost high credit sector, which is where I came from before now, running a national association representing lenders who provide a range of financial products to Canadians, uh, and then now uh, in, in rental health. Um, before that, I'm like a lot of people that work uh, in government relations and public affairs. I worked in government. I worked for a premier. I worked for an opposition leader at Queens Park, uh, and so uh, and, and also spent time running uh, the Justin Eaves Foundation, which is a nonprofit uh, foundation that grants scholarships and bursaries to learning disabled and disadvantaged young people achieving post-secondary education. And that's uh, my my the premier I worked for in Eaves. Uh, that's a foundation that he and his family established after the untimely death of their son Justin. I was tragically killed in a car accident, but uh, the foundation has done a lot of good. He was dyslexic and the foundation has done a lot of good helping young people uh, achieve their dreams of post-secondary education. So uh, I've had a varied career, uh, but it's largely been anchored around government relations and public policy. And so when this opportunity came uh, open at FERPO, I knew of FERPO from my time in government and my time uh, working in in government relations, a well-known association, obviously an absolutely essential industry. I can't think of too many more important. Industries than one that provides roofs over people's heads, uh, and so when the opportunity came to uh, to lead this organization, I jumped to the chance. Four years later, it's gone by uh, very quickly, and uh, a lot of uh, uh, you know, coming in, uh, this sort of uh, you know not, not having been here very long. Then a pandemic coming, we certainly uh, you know had to really sort of uh, uh, learn quickly uh, and and adapt what was going on, like everyone did. But you know, two, two years later, we're all still standing. We're all here and this industry has it just uh, amazed me in terms of uh, what our members have done. Landlords across the province, across the country, but certainly the ones I represent here in Ontario have done so much. And as I say to them, I speak to landlords across the province, and as I've said in some speeches recently, I know this is what you have always done: helping your residents in times of need, uh, deferring rent, uh, you know, helping them out whether it be getting you know, with, with prescriptions, uh, all numbers of ma- manner of things. But of course, it never gets recognized. You never hear, no one ever sort of says thank you really to landlords for doing that. But certainly when the pandemic came, we rose to the challenge. Uh, you know, Far before we were asked by political leaders to do things, we were already doing them. Uh, and I was simply amazed. But understanding the effects that the pandemic had on our members themselves, people, you know, obviously it's stressful on everyone, including landlords, uh, and we can talk about that. But, but what they did to help their residents get through this time was extraordinary. And my hats are off to all landlords traveling in big gun during the course of the pandemic.
0: Guys, aren't you excited to hear from Tony? this is fantastic and, and dude,' you're, you're giving me goosebumps because I was through our, our podcast was walking through these as well and I there was a lot of tension between landlords and tenants and, and will definitely highlight um, we have a, a pretty solid landlord base of listeners. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there didn't seem to be much hope. There seemed to be like, we need you now, was, of course you need us now. You always need us, right? And and they were a, a bit of a rock for a lot of tenants and for government as well. But so as our audience could probably tell, you have a pretty deep understanding of a lot of categories that we cover on our show. So this is why I'm excited to not just cover the basics, which we will do, but I wanna go deeper and I wanna hear mm-hmm. what what is the boots on the ground type of things you're hearing. And before we go there, I know that um, we know a little bit about you, but I think it'd be worthwhile to tell us a little bit more about kind of the background of the Federation of Rental Housing Providers of Ontario, what they do kind of at a macro level, and then we can maybe jump into individual categories that are relevant post-COVID, post-pandemic.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, so FERPA was created back in 1985. Uh, we know the rent control came into Ontario in, in, in the mid to late seventies. Uh, so fast forward to early eighties. And I think there was a real concern amongst, uh, landlords at that time, uh, around some of these changes and wanting to have a voice it was actually originally created as the fair rental providers of Ontario. Uh, that's what FRPO stood for then. Uh, over time, I think there was a feeling that that perhaps needed to change Uh fair can be a little bit, uh, perhaps tricky, uh, Uh, it can mean one thing to someone and something else to another. So uh, at some point, I don't know exactly when, but at some point the name was changed. FRPO remained, which made sense for continuity, but it was changed to Federation of Rental Housing Providers of Ontario. 2,200 members uh, who own, build, manage, service, supply, rental housing. And collectively we have about 350,000 units uh, sort of uh, under our membership, if you will. So that's at a high level. And, And so what do we do? We do a whole number of things, obviously, but our primary purpose uh, in our strategic plan, which we updated, I guess, a little over a year ago, really, of course, is uh, to to provide quality rental housing in Ontario. And and what we do first and foremost is to advocate on our members' behalf to politicians at Queen's Park, as you know, we're highly regulated through the Residential Tenancies Act, uh, and and of course through uh, you know rent control and the Landlord Tenant Board and so on. So it's ensuring that rental housing providers have a voice at Queens Park, ensuring that we are heard. Politicians come and go, as you know. Uh, just now, for the most recent election, there are I think thirty-some odd new MPPs. They need to be educated. Some may know about housing. Some uh, may not know much about housing. Uh, we also know that a number of MPPs are themselves landlords, uh, which, which is. of an interesting side note but bottom line we advocate for our our members at queens park we do a lot of other things uh, as i'm sure you know uh, whether it be running uh, educational uh, sessions webinars networking opportunities Uh, of course we are involved with uh, charitable giving through uh, interval house which is a shelter for women fleeing domestic partner violence so a whole lot of things that FERPO does but at at our core uh, it really is about advocating on behalf of our members uh, to, to queens park
0: yeah yeah, and, and a whole lot more we'll, we'll keep going on in the show here. But I, as you're going through these, it's funny, right? You guys have an amazing mandate in that you're protecting housing, you're protecting landlords, and you're trying to make kind of this go back to roots, right? The fair rental housing, making things what would appear to be affordable. Um, whereas today, if we're all but that. It seems like that's not happening. But no. I know having spoken with folks on the other side, on the tenant side, they it sounds as though their mandate's the same, right? They're trying to accomplish the same thing. Um, and we keep running up against this kind of tension. And uh, I think it's amazing that you're able to walk these MPs through what that process looks like. And, and in some sense, you, you guys are in on both sides, right? You're in government in, in the form of advocacy, but you're also out in the field providing that housing. So you're very heavily involved. Um, yeah. And it's very interesting. And I encourage our listeners to go back and listen to some of our tenant advocacy groups as well. Um, often, though, in these types of contexts, I do find that we get a, a strong voice from organizations like FERPO but um, there are a lot of tenants that are often not, they're not in the, the, the spotlight, right? They're, they're kind of on the side and trying to. So I do feel for them, but there definitely needs to be in the way of protecting consumers, this kind of representation that you guys are offering and that you're bringing. So if, I were, if you were to kind of go very high level, mm-hmm. what would you say, having spoken to landlords and the government, and obviously we have a, a transition of government right now, but what would you say are some of the uh, major challenges that landlords are experiencing that seems to be where all the pressure is on landlords right now.
1: Well, I mean, the landlords are facing uh, a whole host of pressures. I mean, we can talk about skyrocketing insurance uh, costs. We can talk about, uh, you know, skyrocketing costs everywhere. So whether it be utilities, whether it be insurance, I mean, we know the cost of, of running rental housing has, you know, over the last couple of years is gone through the roof. And obviously, inflation is an issue for for everyone, whether it be landlords or uh, or, or or tenants. But uh, in, in the case of landlords, you know, we, of course, had uh, a rent freeze in 2021. Uh, many landlords voluntarily froze rent in 2020. So a couple of years of no rent increases. This year, it's 1.2%, which of course is quite you know, low. That is what the, cal- what the guideline calculated. So it's not yeah. like that was manipulated. That's just what it was. But we know we're on a collision course to a much higher number for 2023. Uh, and the challenge there, of course, is that we have a cap of 2.5% that was brought forward by the previous liberal government. So that's going to be a, a particular challenge. And we've already been communicating that to government, to the, the government that was reelected uh, that that's a a concern. Um, and we know it's a concern of course, because of the very, I think you alluded to earlier, the, the sort of, um, centuries long kind of, uh, you know, perception of landlords and government's unwillingness to, uh, you know, sort of do anything that could be perceived as, you know, landlord friendly. This isn't about being landlord friendly. This is about just being fair, about providing a fair, uh, opportunity for landlords to increase rent by an amount that allows them to simply keep pace with the costs that are, they're they are experiencing and running uh, running their buildings and, and running their units so uh but it's it will be a challenge to sort of uh, navigate that and try to uh get to a better place in terms of an outcome so that's that's certainly one uh, let's, pause, let's of,
0: pause there keep remember sure. your next one but i i that's sure. new information to me in the way of your so this idea of being two and a half cap that's really interesting so when you're saying we need it to be higher, is that coming from the principle of these increased insurance carrying costs, uh, utilities, is that the reason or what drives that need to increase rental the rental amount.
1: So the amount, the the amount, uh, the guideline calculation uh, is is basically an inflationary calculation, right? So it's based on Stats Canada, CPI data every month that comes out. You can see what it is. We track it because it's calculated from June to June. So we have a spreadsheet. Every month we put in that number and you can see where it's going to land. Obviously, for the past number of years, that that calculation has not exceeded 2.5%. So it hasn't been an issue. Whatever the number has been, we've, we've essentially gotten that. Of course, the pandemic was different. And yes, there was a freeze. And we can talk about that, but we're really looking to sort of move forward. But now, uh, but, but now we are in a situation where we are. So I guess just to answer your question, I think our view is that an in- inflationary increase seems fair and reasonable. And that's important. I think that, and I, you know, a lot of people's wages are increased based on inflation. That's sort of a common uh, marker that's used, or, or, or you know, guideline. It's a you know, sort of benchmark that's used for things. So we think that's fair and reasonable. Unfortunately, the previous government, in their Fair Housing Act, which I uh, say in the quotations, Fair Housing Act, uh, which did things like get it do get away with the post ninety uh, one. Um, uh, exemption from rent control and also brought in a, a cap of two and a half percent. Well, now we're in a situation where that cap is, is, is a problem. Yeah, uh, this this problem.
0: is new information. I mean, I've, I've, I read a lot and this, this is obviously maybe something that you guys discuss constantly, but this is new information. So I I'm curious, obviously we don't have a crystal ball, but I'm curious, yeah. what do you think is going to come of that? We have a majority conservative government, but obviously that's going to piss a lot of people off. If you got a 6% increase in rent, um yeah. so what does that, that look like yeah
1: so i i, I guess my uh my, my sort of thought about it without uh knowing for sure where it will go but we've all watched uh, premier ford we've seen him in press conferences uh i sort of get a bit of a sense for for uh the kind of person that he is and you know he he, he yes he's a business person but we know he really is a man for the people he wants yeah. to help yeah. out the little guy uh and and the fact that he has a, a second majority government even larger than the first. Doesn't change who he is at his core. So uh, you said about you know a problem with being six percent. Yes, I think the premier would have a big problem with that. And so uh, you know my my position to him and to uh, the the minister of housing, whether it be uh, whether Minister Clark is returned to that role on Friday, uh, or sorry at the end of this week, uh, or or whether it's um, uh, someone different, my my point to them is going to be the the calculation is it's an inflationary calculation. We feel like that's fair and reasonable. That's what it should be. But we Recognize there's a cap. So where can we where can we go and where can we land uh, that is still fair? And recognizing that many landlords and, and I understand I don't disagree with them will say, well, fair should be what inflation is. That's where it should be. I get that. And and they're the ones who have to pay the bills. They're the ones who have to draw down on credit sometimes to to make things, you know, to to pay expenses. They're the ones who take the risks and run the businesses. So I have huge uh, sort of understanding and and support for them. Uh, But understanding the political reality of any government, whether it be this one or any other one, uh, being uh, uncomfortable, perhaps, with going uh, with a number that is, say, over 5%. So I think we'll have to see where it lands. Uh, I guess all I would say is this to, to finish the thought so there is a cap as we know as i have talked about and from our point of view that's the absolute minimum it should be we should be able to get that that's perhaps still a long way from where it should be we're going to work for more of course we're going to advocate uh, to get as much as we can relative to where the calculation is but i think it's going to be uh, difficult for us to achieve that so uh, we're going to have to be realistic in terms of what's what's achievable
0: Thank you for parking there for a second. I think that's that's amazing insight. Okay, so moving along. So what what other challenges, big challenges, do you see uh, landlords experiencing?
1: Well, look, I mean, I think you can't have this conversation without really talking about the whole sort of you know affordability challenge, right? I mean, it's it is the number one uh, topic uh, that's consuming all conversations around housing. Uh, you know, it's it, it is the whole affordability issue, and so we, whatever side of the fence you sit on, whether you're a tenant or a landlord or a politician, we're all, we're all gripped with this issue. Uh, and so I think it's not, uh, we can't sort of uh, not talk about that. So what does that mean? What does that look like? And, you know, we, within our membership, we have members who build and they wanna build more supply. They want an environment that allows them to do that in a way that is economically feasible, uh, that the pro forma makes sense to build. They wanna do that. We have other members, of course, who don't build, they manage units, uh, and, and they want to continue to do that. But even they recognize uh, that, you know, more supply is absolutely critical to the affordability conversation, even if they're not going to build any, uh, you know, obviously, vacancy rates are tight, most places. Uh, and for us, the key to solving the affordability issue and getting rents, uh, sort of taking some pressure off, off rents is to get more supply. And, and so, and, and, and I think that's, uh, you know, obviously there is a desire amongst the public uh, and amongst our politicians to do something about the, the, the sort of cost of, of housing generally, including rent. And to us, the way to get really get at that uh, is to get more supply built. So uh, that is a huge uh, challenge for us. And I think whatever whatever part of the spectrum you're on as a landlord, it's something that should be of concern to you because we continue to hear every day about affordability issues. And you know those are the kinds of things that will force governments to make decisions that we may not be happy with. if it continues to be uh, more and more stress is put on the system. That's those are things that ultimately politicians say we need to do something. And the do something will be something that most of us in this sector will not necessarily be happy about. So we have to work hard to try to get at this uh, to to really uh, I think we've done a lot in the last couple of years to uh, to really sort of uh, advance the supply conversation. When I started here four years ago, you know, I, I, I was I would get into frequent conversations with people, politicians and otherwise, who would challenge me on the supply argument, would say, "That's ah, it's not really what do you mean? Like we don't really need that, you know, we're fine, there's lots of supply. And I'd say, What are you talking about? I mean, we do these studies uh, with urban nation, uh, looking at what the supply gap is. It's pretty, pretty clear. Fast forward a few years, and now when you have the most recent federal budget that was termed the housing budget, the first 30 pages were all about housing. Uh, And even in that document, the federal finance minister talked about the need to support rental housing. I think it's clear that all governments now recognize we don't have the same, same path maybe, or the same ideas around the solutions, but I think we all agree that supply is absolutely critical and more of it and of all types. And, and what I would say just to finish that thought is we need to that now, if we agree with that, then we need to stop the demonization and the vilification of rental housing we need to overcome the myths the myths around and the the misconceptions around renting uh you know that we all know i think uh that, that a lot of people feel like renting is sort of lesser and it's only meant to be temporary that's simply not the reality today and when you hear language from you know Acorn and others trying to about the financialization of housing and trying to vilify housing, that's not going to get more housing built. It's not going to solve the problem uh, that we need that we need to fix, which is housing, you know, our population that we have now and the immigration that will come in the next coming years, it's only going to be, be exacerbated. So we need to get a handle on that. Uh, and by and in doing that, we shouldn't be pitting one against another. Uh, we shouldn't be vilifying industries. We should be supporting those who want to build housing. Uh, of all forms and 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 really getting
0: at that man as you're talking i get questions and then you answer them immediately after so this is fantastic um you're right like it, it would be almost like a flat earth argument to go back and say you know what's the supply issues in our in our market is it really supply i think across the board every political party all agrees at every government level at this point um and i love that you talked about this vilification of renting um, I think that's such a good point, and I think a big part of it, and and I would love to get your take on this, is this kind of misconception on what is deemed affordable. We have some plans that are affordable in the sense of getting people into home ownership. You got a lot of that at the federal level as well. There's been a lot of recent plans to try and get that first time home buyer into the market. We've got affordable housing in the sense of rent, right, and rent control. And then it seems as though when everyone is yelling at each other, the, the way people are going is just a downwards push towards this kind of inability to even rent. And that's really what's concerning to me as, as a fellow landlord, seeing people on the edge of homelessness in some of these tertiary markets. Yeah. And so my question to you is, what is affordable housing? Um, when you guys are looking at affordable housing, um, FERPO, what, what is it that you guys think of or what does that look like? So,
1: you know, uh, we we often think about it in terms of, uh, you know, uh, housing affordability and affordable housing, right? So they're two different things in, in the sense that you know, housing affordability, there's a, there's a need to make housing of all forms more affordable or there's a need to, uh, whether it be, whether it be uh, you know, sort of trying to make housing more affordable or doing things that uh, result in people, you know, sort of, uh, you know, having greater incomes uh, that are able to afford. I mean, it's a complicated subject, but we want housing to be affordable for people. But then we look at affordable housing. Well, affordable housing to us is uh, a, a bit of a different term in the sense that Uh, you know, there are all kinds of different, when you look at the housing continuum, there are all kinds of different uh, sort of housing forms. So, you know, whether you've got market housing at one end or homelessness at the other. And, you know, I I think as a society, we don't want people to be homeless. We want people to have shelter. I think shelter is critical uh, in a country as rich as Canada, as prosperous as Canada, and and, and as fortunate as we are to live in Canada. I think we don't want that. Uh, And then within that spectrum, there are all sorts of other, you know, other types of housing, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's transitional housing, whether it's supportive housing, uh, you know, whether it's affordable housing. These are different sort of uh, steps along the way uh, from one end to the other. And where we want everyone to be on that, on that, on that continuum, I think, is uh, not something that I can, can answer, uh, but I think what is critical is that we provide, uh, we are in a country where people can have shelter. And so people look at, uh, and I think, you know, people uh, look at us and say, well, you should be building affordable housing. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. So we are we are we we are market uh, we're we're sort of uh, market sector and private market uh, builders of housing, and within that. We do want to have affordable units, and many of our developments do. They will, whether they have to do it through inclusionary zoning, whether they voluntarily say, we're going to build, or provide a certain percentage of units in this building will be affordable. Now, affordable would be based on you know, CMHC definition of affordable, uh, based on the, the CMA uh, and wherever this project is being built. That's what they would consider to be affordable. Uh, but you know, I still remember coming into this role four years ago, and the Minister of Housing saying to me, that the challenge is, there's no, there's no one definition of what affordable is. So people will default CMHC because that's kind of what everyone does. Uh, is that even affordable? You'll have people that say that's not affordable. so then so then what is it? So I, I think that's uh, obviously a difficulty that we have but what's you know the, the reality is you have to use something and so we do have people we do have members who do uh, build a certain will allocate a certain number of units uh, as affordable. But I think even more fundamentally, uh, fundamental to this conversation, uh, people will say to me, "Your members only build high-end rental, very expensive." And I say, well, "Our members do do that, yes, and and there are reasons why they do that. But we have members all over the province who build, and not all just in Toronto. We have a lot of members that build in all kinds of secondary markets, and so they don't all build high-end uh, rental units. They build uh, units that rent at all kinds of different rents, and they want to do more of that." In downtown Toronto, it's true that over the last decade, pretty much all rentals that have been built have been high end, uh, very expensive rents, because that's all that the economics will support uh, for for rental. That needs to change. But in other markets, that's not as much the case. And so we do have a, a range of rentals that are built at different rents, and we need to keep doing that. And so, you know, communities that are supportive of that, they will get more rental built, and then those will, you know, that will then create, open up more units that are uh, of different rents that will appeal to people of different income types, different parts of the spectrum. But, you know, I think we, off, we at FERPA, we talk about when it comes to affordable, uh, you know, and governments that want to bring in inclusionary zoning with no offsets They just say, we're just going to impose this on you. You must build a certain amount of units that are at this rent. And we say, well, we're not, you know, sort of as a principle opposed to inclusionary zoning, but there must be offsets to make this work. You can't, it, you know, if, if the economics don't work we're not gonna build it. And we don't have to build it. Our members will invest their capital elsewhere. So the offsets have to be there to say to that developer, this project makes sense. And so if you want units that are affordable, of course we understand how this works. You're simply charging some people more rent and and, and subsidizing others. But if that's how we wanna do things as a society, our view is, first of all, if you want that, then you have to provide the offsets, meaning you've gotta provide the density and bonuses to be able to make that project work. But secondly, there are people in society who do truly need help uh, to be able to ha- have shelter. Government's role, in our view, is you know, to, to, needs to be there to provide assistance to those who really do need it. So subsidize people through portable housing benefits, housing allowances, provide that where it's necessary, as opposed to simply forcing the private sector to do that. There is a role for government to help people in society who are less fortunate and who do do need that help and they should be doing that. Let us build, do what we do, which is build private market housing of different types and different, if there's a need in the market, you know, private sector will fill it as long as the economics make sense to do that. So it is a tricky subject and a, a difficult conversation, but that's sort of a little bit about uh, how how we view the whole sort of affordable housing uh, subject.
0: Maybe, maybe just to really hit you with a, a big question is obviously government would m- far more love to have a willing um, group of landlords and developers on their side. Are, are there any other ideas other than just kind of like, Pay them, like give them. You deal with that. We will deal with what makes profitability. Is there a, is there a way? Do you see? Or are we just too far down the tracks now that the government can make it, uh, economically sensible for a without you know reaching into the the pockets of the taxpayer and and maybe reaching into the pockets of taxpayers ultimately what helps us. If that's the case, then that's okay too. Do you mm-hmm. see a world where the economics of a developer and of a housing provider can be in line with the the affordability and support of the market? And I know that that's a... That's a tough one. That's a tough question. I I can't think of an answer, but I'm curious what those discussions look like for you guys. Well, I think what I would
1: say to that is, I mean, you know, for example, there are good programs through CMHC, right? CMHC is a, is is an important uh, important institution. provides uh, you know support uh, you know through financing and and mortgage insurance to builders. There are things that the government can do if they really want to uh, to, to stimulate construction of housing, uh, you know, at different uh, different ends of the spectrum. And so, and, and say there are good programs, the rental construction. Fund financing initiative. uh, And now the the federal government's brought forward a housing accelerator fund. Uh, We're still working through the details of how that's supposed to work. So there are things that can be done that that will uh, then make it uh, the economics work to get projects built uh, of of different sort of, uh, you know, uh, say that they would would have different rents and and be um, appealing to different people. Um, The other thing too that I would say is, you know, there are a lot of municipalities who want Rental housing built in their communities, and they're prepared to do a lot. Whether it's waiving development charges, uh, you know, trying to make land available if they can. So, as the housing uh, supply problem, you know, becomes uh, you know more and more acute, you do find municipalities coming forward saying, "What can we do?" We understand that this is a you are you know uh, private sector builders, and and there have to be uh, you know returns uh, provided to investors, and so on. They get that, and they'll say, "What can we do to help?" bring you to our town and, and, and get housing built. So I think there are a lot of creative things that can be done. Uh, it's just like everything I would say to do with government. It comes down to leadership. And it comes down to political will. And if you have those things, then I think a lot can get accomplished. And the notion that we as private sector builders don't want to cooperate with a uh, government, don't want to be involved in these conversations, simply is not true. Because at the end of the day, we build housing. We want to build housing. We don't want to have it all one, all one way. We want to be able to provide different housing that appeals to different people. Uh, and so it's really about sort of, finding ways to work together, I think, as as I said, there are some uh, positives uh, that exist already. Uh, It's really just sort of taking those, moving forward with them, but recognizing that within the entire housing sort of uh, continuum, we all have a role to play. So private sector can do its part, government needs to do its part. Uh, You know, our view is is, uh, uh, government, I I think government should not be in the business of building housing. I don't think that's what government should be doing. They should be providing supportive environments and whether that be through, uh, you know, for financing, uh, other kinds of incentives, you know, just providing the, the conditions so that those who know how to build will build. Government should stick to what it does best, and and let those who you know build uh, do that. And I think you know it, it can work well together. But there has to be a willingness for all parties to come together to really want to tackle this problem. And there's of course a whole host of other issues around nimbyism and people not wanting anything to change and all that. That's a whole separate conversation. But from what we're talking about, you know, it can. I think we can make progress, but we have to all want to make progress and understand where our lanes are and I'll stick in our lanes.
0: Yeah, Naviism is a good example. I'm gonna ask you about what some of the other red tape that uh, builders are running up against as they're trying to put housing together in uh, in, in Canada. I mean, the, the numbers that they're, they're trying to hit as far as development just seem laughable in some cases um, because of some of this red tape. Tell us what are some of the big roadblocks
1: yeah i mean you know the, the so the challenges to building uh, certainly rental housing uh you know the construction costs have skyrocketed so that's certainly a challenge that maybe no one can really do much about but it is certainly an issue uh the the you know, government fees and charges so for example say toronto's looking to raise development charges by another 50 percent. i don't think they have finalized that yet because there was a lot of blowback from people saying like how can you be considering toronto's our development charges a few times already in the last number of years so that just continues to be so when this most recent proposal came out, you know, there was a lot of, uh, obviously, uh, in concern the sector to say, like, do you really, do you actually want housing built? Uh, because if we're going to keep raising these charges. We understand growth has to pay for growth, but these kinds of increases, uh, you know, are, are obviously seem extremely, uh, uh high and are very tough to manage. So certainly government fees and charges. And then the, you talked about the, just the length of time it takes to get through the development approval process, you know, five, six, seven years to get a project, uh, to the point where where. where it's all permitted and and, and construction can start, I I don't think any reasonable person would look at that and say, that makes sense. Yeah, that that seems like a good good system. Uh, You know, we do, uh, pre-pandemic at FERPA, we would do an annual housing tour to a US city, uh, travel down to the States, and and the last thing we did was in Washington in 2019. And we go and see sort of, New buildings, and and so whether it be just you know sort of uh, uh, looking at sort of uh, best practices and what's happening and in, in different innovative things, but also get a sense for what's your system like here in terms of getting projects approved. And there are many cities uh, where it's it's far faster, or it can be done in maybe a year. Uh, so uh, you know the, whatever the whatever the right number is can be debated, but it's certainly not five to seven. Uh, it needs to be much quicker than that. So why does it take so long? Because there's so many different AG agencies, departments, uh, who all want to say, and you've got to go through all these different hoops. And a lot of it is, uh, you know, the person's on vacation and so they're, they're gone for a month and then nothing happens. And your file gets put in a drawer and all these things you think are just crazy, but it does, it does happen. And the other thing is that when it comes, when you work through the development approval system, you know, the, the builders have deadlines they have to meet for things. Governments don't. So, governments, if they don't meet a deadline, there's no, uh, there's no, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, um, nothing happens uh, to them, right? There's no, there, there's no sort of uh, accountability there. So, the province is trying to improve that. Uh, the, the the Ford government, through Bill 109, uh, brought forward, for example, some changes to that that are trying to uh, actually impose penalties if cities don't municipalities don't actually meet targets. That might help, but at the end of the day, again, it's 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 simply takes too long. Uh, it's too expensive relative to fees and charges. Of course, cost of land is a whole nother issue that recognized recognize governments can't do much about in, 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 except for if there's government land, uh, that's not being utilized that could be made available for housing. So, for example, I'm seeing, uh, a, as I travel around OPP stations that have been decommissioned and now are being torn down because new stations have been built, what's happening to that land? Uh, or, the, you know, governments own a lot of land. So is there land that could be freed up for housing? And I think that's something we are starting to see happen in some cases. Uh, but because cost of land, of course, unless you own it already, uh, is is just, just prohibitively expensive
0: for a builder to buy to put housing on. Tony, so, you don't think that's going to work. You're just lining the pockets of all your friends, right? <laughs> that's the accusation right it's so sad i mean you see all these the the cranes in the sky in toronto and it's like oh look you guys are developing like crazy well no they're just waiting you know they're they're waiting for labor they're waiting for approvals
1: yes we've heard yes we have heard uh the accusations made that we are sitting on land and sit with with permits yeah permitted and we're just not building and you know i mean i'm never going to say there's not ever uh any truth to anything that's been said like i can't say there's not one example that, that might be true don't know, but certainly when I talk to my members, they, they just say what things that you said, which is, uh, first of all, what step is it in the process, first of all, because it may be, you know, it may be in the process, but it doesn't mean it's finished through the process, uh, for one, or they can't find skilled trades, any number, I hear that more and more uh, these days in my, my travels and my conversations, members will say to me, we're ready to go, we can't find the trades to do the work. So that's definitely a concern. The suggestion that people are just sitting on land, not wanting to develop it, means. Uh, Means that there's a reason why they're not doing it, and you know, we work with Altus Group, for example, uh, and just had them do an a updated study for us. We did a couple of years ago, looking at Toronto and Ottawa, different uh, you know projects, whether it be 100% market, whether it be uh, 90% market, 10% affordable, or I think we went as much as 80-20, just to look at and dimp all the costs into this into these projects, uh, and putting in different assumptions to sort of understand you know the, the the challenge so we can we can show politicians the challenges that builders have in terms of Making projects pencil, and the simple reality is that in some uh, urban markets, uh, you know, there would need to be an almost 100% density increase uh, to be able to make the project economically feasible. And that's of course the high end, and it varies. But the point just is, you know, this is not a straightforward conversation. Uh, the, the, but again, we are private sector builders, so the economics have to make sense, or else it's not going to happen. And so, people just think that we're uh, well. I don't like to repeat things people say about us, but uh, you know, all things. <laughs> Uh, and it's just simply not true. It, it's just it just it just simply
0: isn't true. Okay, I want to hit you with a couple more questions here. Um, we're running tight for time, but we want to pivot and talk about the landlord tenant board. Can you quickly tell us about the backlog, where we're at with that?
1: So, you know, landlord tenant board is, of course, another you know, important topic. I mean, we we really uh we're simultaneously working on, always working on the supply conversation and the operational uh side of, 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 of being a landlord because they're both equally important and 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 both hugely challenging. So landlord tenant board is, you know, it it's um uh when when the Ford government came into office, uh there was a huge uh deficit in terms of adjudicators. The previous government was letting positions uh expire and not. Yeah. Uh-huh. Not even not forget about reappointing, not even sort of extending terms. So when the new government came in, there was a huge need for adjudicators. There was a massive uh, shortage in the number of adjudicators. So we were really pushing on them to to deal with that. Uh, over time, they have uh, you know increased the number of adjudicators. Unfortunately, many are part time. Many are cross appointed with so they serve on other tribunals besides just the LTB. So it's something that uh, you know we we just had a meeting last week with the LTB uh, and sort of new leadership there and they know that's an issue and you know continue to sort of work on trying to to improve increase the number of adjudicators that's certainly one and that is a big big plays a big part in the backlog because there simply aren't enough adjudicators to hear cases uh to write orders so that that's a big piece when you still hear that it can take nine months to get through the process for where you start uh you know file uh to actually having a hearing scheduled then actually having the hearing of course it can be any number of adjournments there are a lot of times where tenants just won't show Show up, uh, and they can get the, the hearing adjourned. Uh, so get through that whole process to finally getting an order uh, issued, and then if it's in favor of landlord, to actually having the sheriff come uh, to carry the eviction. That whole process can take the better part of the year. That's not acceptable, right? I mean, it's far too long. Uh, access that's not access to justice in a fair and reasonable manner. I don't think anybody again would argue with that. And it's important for both landlords and tenants to have uh, access to justice and have it in a timely fashion. So, what are the reasons for that? It, it really does come down to resources. So again, the Ford government has put uh, resources in uh, to the board, to Tribunals Ontario. Uh, they committed nineteen, other $19 million, I think, in the budget, which didn't pass because of the election. So they'll be reintroducing that in the summer and that will pass, I, I mean, uh, when it If it passes, I say that because I mean it is majority government, but the language always is, if it, if it passes, uh, when it passes, then that's another $19 million that should start to flow. That will help, but they're gonna need more. I mean, I think the, the reality is uh, it, it's it's been under-resourced for a long time. So you know, this new term of government will certainly be encouraging the attorney general to continue to put more resources into the board uh, for back office staff, for technology, for adjudicators, all things that are needed to get, I mean, LTV has service standards uh, themselves that they're not meeting. Uh, and so they need to get the resources uh, necessary so they can meet their own service standards. So we're going to continue to advocate. And then also uh, from a process point of view, for example, you know, a lot of here, a lot of cases at the LTV are related to non-payment of rent. In our view, those are pretty straightforward. Uh, you've got documentation. You've got proof. Uh, certainly, uh, if a tenant doesn't a- a- appear at the hearing, in our view, there should be an expedited uh, process for those uh, to not have to then, you know, re- re-adjourn them or sorry, adjourn them and, and-, and reschedule. Uh, that takes a lot of time, and that's not efficient, not good use of time. So, to us, there should be a way to expedite those sorts of hearings, especially if the tenant is- does not does not appear at it. Um, so, things like that to get problem, you know, could speed things along. Yeah, it's not denying anybody their right uh, to hearing it's uh, making the system more efficient for those who choose not to participate so yeah.
0: those are another. those are great ideas i I, I could back those ones um, so obviously I, and I love the thing that you've kind of repeated where you know um, the economics need to make sense for developers and for builders mm-hmm. and landlords and that's true that's accurate and I think that that's a beautiful thing and the scary thing of all of this is is how many we maybe'll we'll never know how many. Um, Helpful individuals have we scared away from Ontario. And so we got to get a handle on this. And so my last question for you guys is, at FERPA, what are you guys advocating for? What, at a high level, what are some of the big action items that you want to see this new uh, Ontario government um, take control over in order to to fix all of these things?
1: It's a great sort of thing you just just mentioned uh, about that. The thing that I hear the most from our members who develop is wanting certainty in right i mean we all want certainty in our lives i think and so maybe it's a bit much for me to be suggesting uh like we all want that but certainly for our members who build they say to me we need certainty in regulation so in other words you know we had the exemption from rent control uh for all units post 1991 then the previous government canceled that then yeah. the before government brought it back for units post november 15 2018 that's not that that they did that—that's critical. They did that, and definitely it has helped get more projects. Uh, in fact, even uh, some projects have been converted from condo uh, to rental uh, in the application process. So that's good. The concern from our from from experienced builders is I've seen this before, so it's here now, but it could be gone again in a couple of years. Yeah. So- having certainty in our regulatory environment, because to your point, builders don't have to build, they can invest their money elsewhere, they can take their capital somewhere else, and no doubt people have. So having a system that isn't constantly fiddled with the, the, where there is sort of certainty in the regulatory environment so that people, because as, as anyone that is, is experienced with government will tell you, they'll say, we may not love certain things the government does, but as long as we know what it is, we can learn to adapt to it. As long as we know it's not gonna be here one day, change the next day, change to two days after that. As long as we know it's going to be there, we can figure out a way to make it to work with it. I mean, unless it's something that's really horrible, you know. But more or less, we can figure out how to work with it. So that's one thing, one sort of very overarching message. Beyond that, in terms of what are we really advocating for, uh, what will we we'll be talking about? We didn't get into it now. Maybe this will be a future podcast with me or someone else. But certainly, the housing affordability task force uh, that the previous government uh, put in place in November of last year, we weren't on it. I wasn't on it, but we were involved in the process. I met with the task force members. We provided them information. So one of the things that the, 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 the four government said afterwards was, you know, we, we intend, they intend to move forward with all the recommendations. All of
0: the uh, recommendations.
1: That, that's something what's been said, and we'll see what actually, <laughs> uh, admittedly, admittedly, I would not be surprised if some have to be sort of fine tuned a bit, uh, perhaps modified somewhat just to be and, and just to sort of uh, recognize some political realities. But the point is the, the government, the Ford government, it certainly seems to have indicated they intend to move forward in a very significant way with that wow. report. That's a,
0: that's a huge win. That's a huge win. And I encourage anyone who hasn't to go through those those action items on the task force, because yeah, I, think, I so. think it was interesting how many were pushed to the sidelines because of the election um but. Well,
1: I mean, if, yes, exactly, and and so Bill one hundred and nine sort of just started, but it was you know they they did a few things, but we all knew with the election there, uh, you know they were going to sort of take that slowly. So we'll certainly be you know encouraging uh, the government now that the election's passed us to really move forward and really sink their teeth into the, into those. Yeah. So there was a lot of good recommendations there. Furpo, you know, Furpo fully supports, as do all of our friends in the sort of building uh broader building sector. So we're going to be that's we're going to be really pushing on that to Bradley as we move forward with this government.
0: Awesome. Love to leave off on that one. Mr. Tony Irwin, this has been a wonderful conversation. Tell us where people can find out more about FERPA, the things you guys are doing, some of your uh, maybe platforms or advocacy points. And uh, I know a lot of people are going to want to read up more on some of these cool things.
1: We've just redone our website so furpo.org you can find out everything there but upcoming events uh you know we're, we're sort of like many st- starting to sort of move back into some uh, I, I would say hybrid where we're uh, you know sort of trying to do in person but still with a virtual uh, option for those who want that but things are coming up so certainly we encourage folks to go there and then uh, on social media uh, it's uh furpo facts uh, you can find us on on twitter uh, uh on uh on uh, instagram and twitter uh, and then the another thing is Let's Build Ontario is our PR campaign. Uh, we encourage folks to go uh, and, and, and look at that as well. Uh, and that just is where we do a lot of work around trying to uh, uh, dispel some of the myths, whether it be around a lot of the financialization stuff. We didn't get into more detail today, but uh, the talk around perhaps uh, uh, changing the tax structure for REITs, uh, taxing renovations, all kinds of really bad ideas that would do uh, be very harmful for getting more housing built and even maintaining the old rental housing stock we have today. So I encourage folks to go and look at our website and go look at uh, Let's Build Ontario to Google that and uh, you'll find a website for that too. A lot of great uh, information there.
0: Guys, if you had fun on this conversation listening in, uh, please leave us a comment, hit the like button, support us by sharing it on Instagram. Our handle is at Watson Estates. Tony, thanks again for taking the time and look forward to picking up this conversation next time.
1: Great being with you, Say Bradley. Thank you so much for having me.